Daniel Dukes was a young man who had struggled with many things in his life. He was a drifter and had uh, abused alcohol and drugs and had more than a few brushes with the law on, on one particular occasion. He happened to be in the Orlando area and uh, apparently inspired by alcohol, he decided he might want to take a swim. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he decided that it would be fun to take a swim with a whale. So uh, he snuck into SeaWorld and found the killer whale tank, took off his clothes and jumped in. The next morning, employees at SeaWorld uh, found the man's body. Uh, he had drowned or perhaps from hypothermia, but both of those things worked together to take his life. And then a not so untypical turn of events. Um, Daniel Duke's parents sued SeaWorld. Uh, they claimed that the company was liable for their son's death since they had portrayed the killer whale as friendly and people-loving. <laughs> Apparently calling it a killer whale uh, and making access to the tank where the killer whale lived uh, hard to get to was not good enough. That wasn't a strong enough warning. So all the warning signs that were there, keep out, danger, cross this line, you could die, uh, none of that seems to matter. Well, later on, the parents withdrew their lawsuit, but it's just another example of how prone we are to ignore all of the warning signs and blame everyone else for our troubles but ourselves. This is basically the message of the book of Judges. Everyone decides that he's going to have his own set of standards of what's right and what is wrong. So the theme verse in the book of Judges that's repeated throughout uh, this book is there, there was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, today, after having put our series on Judges on hold to celebrate Advent, uh, we're now returning to the concluding, I think, three sermons. And uh, as you're aware, uh, Judges is not a light-hearted book. It's not one of those nice, warm and fuzzy feeling uh, pieces of literature that, that you read. Um, and instead, uh, you're going to see judges as much like you know, warning signs that you would expect to see at SeaWorld where they have the killer whale. Uh, warning, do not cross the line. Uh, do not follow your own rules. Follow these rules that have been set down for you if you don't want to die. <laughs> so uh, that's pretty much the message of Judges. Isn't that a fun message, you know, to, uh, to, to concentrate on? But uh, he, this is a good point, really, for us uh, to kind of change gears since we, we did change gears to make time for Advent and celebrate uh, the, uh, the, the coming of the Lord. 
Uh, but the first 16 chapters of Judges, uh, there was a, a, a pattern. Uh, everything was fine, and then the people of Israel strayed away from the Lord and then they fell into the hands of oppressive nations and it got to be more than they could bear so they would cry out to God and then God would raise up a deliverer, a judge. So when we say judge, don't think of some guy uh, sitting behind a, a bench in, in black robes. Uh, not that kind of judge. This is more of a, a rescuer, a deliverer of sorts, a, a, a savior. So th think of it in, in those terms. So that's the way it was for the first 16 chapters. And now we get to chapter 17 and we read and we don't see a foreign nation coming in and oppressing the people of Israel. We don't see the people of Israel crying out to God for help to get them out of this situation. Uh, nevertheless, we do see the people in a rough spot, but their enemy is not some outside nation the enemy is inside. They are their own worst enemy. And they are not calling on God to send someone to deliver them from themselves. So, uh, you know, there's a, a, a different enemy uh, that the people of Israel are, are facing in these uh, concluding chapters. And um, as uh, we've already noted, they are their own worst enemies. And uh, they have descended into sin in its advanced state. So that's really what I want to talk about this morning is uh, sin in its advanced state. Um, what would you say sin would look like when it has reached its advanced state? Some uh, might say, maybe most, would say, well, the advanced stage of sin is atheism. You just get to the point where you don't even believe that there is a God. Uh, but atheism is really not the essence of sin. It, it's, it's something else, something that might surprise you, something that is revealed to us in the story that we are about to read. And if you have your pew Bibles and want to turn with me to Judges 17, uh, it's on page 216 in your pew Bible. Uh, so we will be reading... Uh, the full chapter, uh, but it's only 13 verses, so I'm expecting to hear a collective sigh of relief about now. Um, okay, here we go. Judges chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. His mother said, Blessed be the son, or blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate this silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. And so when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod 
and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? He said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem of Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I might find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with us, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. The Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest." What is the essence of sin? Where do we see it manifested in this story? Well, the essence of sin consists of two components. Number one is distorted religion, and number two is perverted morality. And they come in that order. So uh, first of all, let's talk about uh, distorted religion. Uh, we see distorted religion at work in... Uh, well, all over the place here, but we'll begin with Micah's mother. You know, right off the bat, we have three perversions of true religion. First of all, Micah's mother blesses her son, even though he just admitted to stealing 1,100 pieces of silver from her. Um, 1,100 pieces of silver in those days was worth the wages of an average laborer uh, for 100 years. So you're talking about retirement security, uh, you know, she had it. Um, but something that's curious here is, is, is we notice how superficially she invokes the Lord's name in, in blessing him. Um, you know, he comes up and says, hey, mom, you know that 1,100 pieces of silver that, well, that, that was taken? And he overhears the curse, and, you know, he doesn't want to be subject to this curse, so he, he fesses up, you know, that, that, that silver, uh, I took it. And blessed are you, son. Uh, she's just all happy and gushes all over him, although he hasn't really shown any re repentance. So uh, that's one perversion of, of true religion of uh, showing this kind of, uh, of, of approval when there has been no uh, re repentance uh, that would precede it. Uh, second, after her son gives the silver back to her, uh, she gives 200 pieces back to him. Now, why does she do that? She said she was going to dedicate the whole thing to the Lord. But she started to think about it, you know, 1,100 pieces, that's a lot of money. You know, if it lasts on one, you know, 100 years, uh, maybe I should not give all of it to the Lord, as I said. So uh, she just gives 200 pieces to uh, her son Micah, and um, the rest of it she just puts in her pocket. Uh, 
In Acts chapter 5, there's a story about uh, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who sold a certain piece of property for a certain amount of money. And they brought it before uh, Peter, who was presiding at the worship service that day. And uh, Peter says, well, is this the everything? Is this the, the, the full price of the property? And he said, yeah, it, it is. And uh, Peter says, you're... Uh, you know, he, he, he pronounces the, the death sentence upon Ananias. He dies. The young men come and carry him out. And a little while later, it was a long service in those days. People were coming and going. And uh, Sapphira comes in, and Peter interrupts what he's saying, and he asks the same question of her, and she gets the same answer that her husband did, and he, bam, he dies, or she dies right on the spot. What do you think the impact was on the church that day? You know, uh, two people die while... Uh, they're uh, attending worship services. Um, sometimes we don't take God as seriously in worship uh, as, as we should. And certainly Micah's mother is not taking God seriously at all. Um, even though she dedicated, says she was dedicating all 1,100 pieces, she only dedicates 200 and keeps the rest of it for herself. But does she really dedicate that 200 um, pieces of silver to God? Actually, no. What she does is she goes to a silversmith and has him carve an image from that silver. Now, something that's kind of interesting here is uh, that this seemed to be a common practice among the people of Israel. A silversmith doesn't seem to have any problem carving out uh, uh, a graven image uh, for this woman. And uh, so we, we have that perversion of, uh, of, of religion. And then th there's a, a third provision here where we see uh, Micah installing one of his own sons as a household priest. Now, Judaism, especially in, in, in these early years, uh, you, you didn't have leeway about who would be uh, a priest and who would be a Levite. If you were born into the tribe of Levi, uh, you were a Levite. And uh, if you wanted to serve a, as a priest, um, you know, you had to be uh, you had to have the lineage to, to, uh, to qualify you for that. Um, however, Micah didn't really think that was a big deal. Um, he was more interested in just setting up a shrine in his own home. He had one of his sons be his, his own priest and conduct worship and offer sacrifices in, in the way that he saw fit. So uh, you had this non-Levite serving as a priest and he's a priest, uh, you know, not for the Lord, but for these man-made idols. So it all adds up to, uh, you know, rather bizarre and distorted uh, perversions of religion. Now, why would Micah's mother want to worship some other god? And she said she's dedicating this silver uh, to God. Um, so why she, you know, wanted to worship an idol? Well, she would argue that she's not worshiping some other god. I mean, after all, in whose image is this idol being carved? Uh, you know, the, 
nations uh, that surrounded the people of Israel, they had their gods, they had their Baals, they had their Ashtaroth, they had Chemosh, the Moabites had Chemosh, uh, uh, the Philistines had Dagon, uh, the Syrians had uh, Rimon. Uh, they all had their own gods, but the silversmith isn't fashioning an idol out of the, the silver in the likeness of one of these gods. Uh, he's making an idol for Micah's mother to represent the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so the image that she's having fashioned, uh, she thinks it's genuine worship. A couple of things to say about that. If you remember the Ten Commandments, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have nowhere the gods before me. And uh, he goes on to say, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above. Or, uh, and, and he goes on from there. So no other gods and, and no idols. Those are the first two commandments. And it seems that Micah, Micah's mother, the Levite, all of that, uh, they seem not to be aware of what, the, the Ten Commandments have to say at all. But it reminds me of something else, speaking of the Ten Commandments, when Moses went upon the, the mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the, the commandments from God, uh, the people of Israel grew restless because Moses had been away for such a long time and they didn't know what had happened to him. So the people came to Aaron, who was the high priest, who happened to be uh, Moses' brother. And uh, I, I guess Aaron was uh, quite an a craftsman himself as far as working with fine metals and so uh, people brought uh, the, uh, the the gold uh, jewelry that they had and uh, gave it to Aaron and he fashioned this calf from it the, the golden calf and then he says behold the your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt he doesn't believe that this calf that he has fashioned is an idol that represents some other god. He thinks it's a, a, a faithful representation of the true god. And this is what Micah's mother seems to be doing as well. So essentially what Micah's mother is saying is, you know, she's not worshiping some other god. She's not worshiping no god. She is worshiping a reduced god, a revised god, a or an adjusted God. You know, Micah's mother is not the last person to do something like this. A lot of religious people come up with their own concept of God and assume that this image that they have in their mind is the God of the Bible. And, you know, you hear people say things like this. Uh, we can no longer accept a God who does this or who forbids that. And when you hear the term no longer, uh, it means that we kind of wrap uh, ourselves with, 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 with a mantle of so-called progress. And what we're really saying is something like this. Our, our culture's distaste for the things that God does or the things that God forbids means that we have to drop those things. We have to have a God that fits our culture's sensitivities or sensibilities so consequently we do what Micah's family did we reshape remold refashion God 
to fit into our society and into our hearts instead of letting God reshape our hearts and our society. It's just backwards. We get to be the ones in charge and God gets to be the one to obey and to respond on command. This is distorted religion, fashioning God into an image that reflects who you want him to be. And that's what this woman is doing with God. She's whittled God down. She's put a handle on him. Uh, she's made him uh, more portable, more accessible. You can put him in your purse. You can put him in your knapsack. Uh, he's a God that you can take places with you. He's a God who is manageable, who is tame. And we think that we can understand and control a God that we can see and touch and hold in our hands. That's why idolatry was so popular in those days. So all of our problems, in essence, come from distorted religion, from whittling God down, refashioning him into the image that we want him to be. I want us to look at uh, Psalm 50, verse 21 for a moment. Here's the first part of that psalm. Uh, the, the Lord is speaking to his people. Uh, there are some things that, that they have done, and he hasn't said anything about it. Uh, so he said, you've done these things, and I've kept silent. So what do you think would naturally come after that? Uh, does God say, uh, I kept silent when you were rejecting me or when uh, you were worshiping other gods? It's not what he says. He says, you've done these things, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. This is what pushes God's button when his people assume that he, God, is just like them or that he's just like us. You know, this is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is when we are sure that God must be like us. It's when we whittle God down to our size. Uh, let me provide some examples for you here. Uh, one is thinking that God can be bought. If you whittle God down to the size that you want him to be to fit the mold that you have created for him, then you're going to think that God can be bought. This is, uh, well, let me say it this way. Uh, at this time of year, uh, we often resolve to, to do better. We resolve to read the Bible more. We resolve to clean up our lives. We resolve to go to church more. Uh, and, and why do we resolve to do these things? It could be for the right reasons, or it could be that we think that God can be bought. You know, we do these things and we're convinced that God will be impressed, and so he owes us. We are convinced that God has to bless us now because we're doing everything right. Remember that verse we read just a little bit ago where Micah is saying, now the Lord will have to bless me because I have a Levite as a priest. Now I've got everything in order. I've got a, a genuine, authentic Levite to be a priest. And now God has to bless me. Can you just picture God looking at Micah, Micah saying this, and God thinking, man, I didn't want to bless Micah. He did everything wrong, 
But now he's got a Levite for a priest, so I guess I'm caught on this technicality. Now I've got a blessing. Is that the picture that we have of God? Apparently it was the picture that, that Micah had of God. He is going to somehow or another manipulate God into doing what he wants God to do. And God will have to do it uh, because Micah has pushed the right buttons. You know, he's, he's got this shrine in his home. He's made an ephod. An ephod is the apron of sorts that the priests will wear. Have the umi and the thumbing there uh, where, whereby you would use to determine the, the will of God. And um, so anyway, um, Micah's got this, this shrine, this beautiful ephod. He's got these attractive idols and he's established a priesthood. Um, and yet, even though Micah thinks he's in compliance, he is totally out of compliance as far as what God has prescribed for worship. But, and uh, the, the verses that, that follow, uh, Micah just gets real excited because one day, you know, somebody comes knocking on his door and uh, he discovers that it's a, a Lisa Levite or Rena Rev or something like that. Anyway, it, he's, a, he's an authentic Levite and he can fill the gap uh, that exists there. So thinking that God can be bought, uh, that you can somehow bargain with him and he will have no other choice but to accept your offer. Uh, that's... You know, one example of thinking God's just like us, you know, well, we can bargain with him. Here's another example. You don't think God's any wiser than you are. Do you know why we're so scared and so angry when things go wrong, when uh, things are in disarray or even tragic? You know why so many people walk away from God saying, I, I just can't believe in a God who would let something like this happen? Do you know what you're saying when you say this? You're saying that because you can't think of a good reason why such and such a thing is happening, that there can't be a good reason. If you can imagine it, then it's impossible. Even for God. So you can't imagine God can be any wiser than you are. He's on your level. His wisdom is limited to what you can come up with. There's a, a, another example of uh, how we act when we think uh, God is just like us. Uh, I will refer to it as, as perception uh, that God is just like me. Uh, when you look at pictures of Jesus, what do you see? A white man with light brown hair blue eyes. How many Jews do you know who look like that? <laughs> um, also, I mean, we, we tend to, to, to think of, of the Lord as looking like us with the same values that we have, and he's got to be in America. I mean, we are, after all, his favorite people, are we not? I mean, we, we, we have perceptions like that. And um, something else, um, 
you know, the, the, the pictures that you all often see hung in, in um, Sunday school classrooms or uh, other places in, in, in churches where, you know, you, you have a, a picture of Jesus or uh, several uh, pictures of Jesus. Um, there is a danger in that because there is no picture that any artist could paint that would reflect the totality of who Jesus is. You only get one aspect of him. You might get an aspect to Jesus, you know, with the lamb across your shoulders as the good shepherd, uh, but you'd be missing out on Jesus and all of his other attributes. Uh, a lot of our art we want to present Jesus in the way that we want him to be, gentle, meek, mild, and manageable. Well, no one's saying anything, so I'm going to go on. <laughs> it is not our place to refashion or revise or update God into a being that our culture is more comfortable with. It's not our place to refashion, re-image, reconstruct God to fit into our image. It's just the other way around. When we worship, we are asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and to refashion, revise, remake us into the image of Jesus Christ. So Micah, his mother, his family, they got it all upside down. It's not our prerogative to pick and choose the attributes of God we like and discard the attributes of God that make us uncomfortable. It is our place to get to know God as he really is, as the Bible reveals him to be. Otherwise, we're not worshiping God at all. We're only worshiping an image of who we want him to be. So, why would anyone think God is just like us? Why would we think that? Um, because such, such thinking is a reflection of sin in its advanced stage. And um, there are two components of sin in its advanced stage. Distorted religion is one. We've just talked about that. The other is perverted morality. Distorted religion leads to perverted morality. You know, you see perverted morality all through the 17th chapter of Judges. You know, Micah steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother when Micah uh, gives the silver back to his mother. She says she's going to dedicate it to the Lord, but she doesn't. She dedicates 200 pieces of silver uh, for an idol, and she keeps the remaining uh, 900 pieces for herself. And so we, we have Micah, his mother, and Micah's son, and the young Levite, all thinking that they are faithfully serving the Lord when they are doing nothing of the sort. In reality, they are idolaters, they are robbers, opportunists, and covenant breakers. This is sin in its advanced state. It's the fallout of radical individualism uh, that you see here in the time of the judges. 
You know, people look to self uh, for their guide uh, to morality and ethics. And, uh, you know, people genuinely uh, felt like they were doing what was right, uh, but it was in their eyes only. We don't use this term, uh, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, uh, but we do the same thing, we just call it something else. We call it following our heart or letting your conscience be your guide. Well, it's good to let your conscience be your guide. You know, Jiminy Cricket sitting there on Pinocchio's shoulder saying, you know, whistle a little tune or whatever. Let's let your conscience be your guide. But your conscience is of no help whatsoever if you don't have some objective moral standard on which to base it. You can't make up your own morality. You can't be your own God. You can't appoint yourself as the sovereign of the universe and say, I don't like anybody else's rules. I'm going to come up with my own rules. That's not reality. But a lot of people choose to, to live that way because, you know, frankly, they're just uncomfortable with the God who is. You know, more and more today we see the subjectivism or subjectivization, if that's a word, <laughs> of the objective standard of morality. Um, for example, you see and hear this a lot. You may have two professing Christians uh, who are um, having intimate relations with one another even though they're not married. And why are they doing this? Well, they prayed about it and they both felt peace about it, so it must be good with God. But what does the objective standard say uh, about such activity? You know, that's forbidden outside marriage. But when you decide that you want to make it more subjective, you know, more, you know, quote-unquote spiritual, you pray about it, you feel peace about it, uh, regardless of what the Lord has said in his word, uh, whatever you feel seems to hold sway. It's what Micah's family did. They followed God's law up to a point. They felt real spiritual and religious and so forth. But they, they took true worship and they twisted it and they added to it so they could do whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Well, the story that we've explored today shows what it looks like when a society does whatever seems right in its own eyes. This does not necessarily mean that when a society does what is right in its own eyes, that it has consciously rejected God. The people in such a society may assume that they are doing everything right and that, uh, and they may assume that God will have to bless them because of some technicality or because they have, you know, bought God. Let me say it again. God cannot be bought. But you can you and I can be bought. And we have been bought. We have been bought, we have been redeemed by the blood of God himself who became flesh, dwelt among us, became one of us, only without sin, 
What a marvelous, life-changing thought to think that the God who spoke the universe, all of the galaxies, all of the stars, and all of the planets that go way beyond what we can think or imagine, was so great that he, he could become so small to become just a little speck inside his mother's womb and grow to become the sinless, perfect Lamb of God so that he would qualify to buy us back, to buy us out of slavery through his blood. We're going to celebrate that now after the song. Um, it's a privilege we have to come to the table that reminds us of the price that was required for our redemption and uh, points us to the Savior who willingly laid down his life for his friends. Let us pray and then we'll join together in song. Gracious Father, as we look at Judges, and um, especially when we come to the 17th chapter and we see all of the things that are going on and, and in principle it, it seems so much like the world that, that we live in where everyone uh, does what is right in his own eyes. There was no king, uh, that is there was uh, no one to bring an objective moral standard, there was no deliverer, there was no savior, so people were left to their own devices. We are grateful that you did not abandon us to our own sins, uh, to let us experience the, the full consequence of our straying from you, of our redefining you, but you came in the flesh. You were the image, you were the image of the invisible God. What a gift you are to us. What a extraordinarily high price uh, you paid uh, to redeem us. As we think of the, the, the costliness of worship, may we be reminded that you gladly did this in order that our souls might be redeemed, that we might have fellowship with you forever. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.